Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Ian McGee, a current PhD student at University of Bristol, Cardiff, in the Department of Religions and Theology, and also a part-time teacher there. His book, Understanding the Paragraph and Paragraphing, was published by Equinox in 2018. Indent. I am now drawing a paragraph in the air. Do you see the block of text forming as I speak? Does the shape of the text point away for you? That is, do you see where I'm taking this introduction because you're inside of this paragraph? And what happens to the shape of things if I stray off topic and talk about the wonderful meal I had yesterday? But when I say paragraph, do I return you here to this first paragraph of the introduction now ending as I move on to the next point? Ian McGee's book, Understanding the Paragraph and Paragraphing, gives us a new view on an old companion of us readers and writers, the paragraph. We all remember school days when the teacher preached the boons of the topic sentence, when our paragraphs were deemed coherent or incoherent, when the crispness of a text for reading was put down to the crispness of the writer's paragraphing skills. Well, it turns out that things are far more complicated, and the trouble any one of us experienced trying to write a paragraph in our texts is the trouble that every one of us experiences trying to write a paragraph in our texts. The paragraph is no simple thing, in part because just what the paragraph is is no simple thing to say. Is the paragraph a formatting convention or a form of punctuation? Does the paragraph have a structural reality in the text as discourse? Is it a part of the meaning? Or does the paragraph have a formal basis and much like the sentence can be constructed regardless of the content it carries? Is there, so to speak, a paragraph equivalent to Chomsky's colorless green ideas sleep furiously, correctly formed but impossible to understand? The book 
Understanding the paragraph and paragraphing helps answer these and many other questions because the book is thorough. The history of the paragraph is covered, the pedagogy of the paragraph, the research on the paragraph, the usage of the paragraph, all of these are covered. So that the reader closes the book now at the crest of the wave on everything we know about the paragraph, which we've always been told is important, but which ends up being more important than we actually thought. Ian McGee engages with the research, and Ian McGee considers carefully the application of that research to the teaching of writing. Theory and findings and uses get equal attention, and our understanding of the paragraph only increases for that, because the research grounded in practice corrects the flights of speculation, and the practice grounded in research corrects the pitfalls of prescription. Teaching and researching reinforce each other's aims, and the results that Ian McGee achieves in understanding the paragraph and paragraphing is a broad but also in-depth view on something that every reader and every writer will have a view on, the paragraph. So let's begin today's episode, Ian and the paragraph and paragraphing. Ian, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thanks, Daniel, and thanks very much for inviting me to be here. Great. Um, the book itself is uh, quite extensive, as I um, indicated in the uh, introduction. I wonder if you could give us a view as to what led you to such a um, topic. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. So I think it was around 2012. I just finished off a couple of research projects and was thinking about what to look into next. At that time, I'd been teaching writing for a number of years in universities, and nagging at the back of my mind was the, the whole issue of uh, paragraphs. Um, I had been teaching them, I had been marking them, I had been correcting them, and yet I wasn't quite sure really what paragraphs were. By that I mean, in terms of following the textbooks, I could of course understand what a paragraph was, but I was beginning to see that the textbooks and practice didn't quite match up. I think I was particularly stimulated to investigate uh, the work by the reading of Michael Hoey, um, who is one of the um, more contemporary uh, scholars who have actually engaged a little bit with paragraphing. So that began my journey, and um, about six years later, uh, I finished the book. And the book takes us... Um on quite a trip, uh, as, as I indicated in the intro, uh, we get history, we get theory, and we get practice. Uh, the history bit was, for me, really quite interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose if, you know, you show the cover of this book to somebody, they think the paragraph, <laughs> and you make it so fascinating because you bring us back to the Greek. You bring us all the way from the Latin up into the early modern uh, English uh, era, and then, of course, the pivotal 19th century, which, which forms a large part of the history there, and then right up on to the uh, current, uh, current period now, today. I wonder if you could maybe give us a sketch of what for you uh, turned out after the research there to be important in that history. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, one of the few uh, scholars of the 19th century who actually researched paragraphs and paragraphing was someone called Edwin Lewis. And I talk about him a little bit in, in the book. Um, what is particularly interesting about Edwin Lewis is that he 
did investigate the history of paragraphing, but he only investigated it through the lens of one of his contemporaries, a man called Alexander Bain. So what that meant was that he was actually considering historic paragraphing practice through the lens of Bain's work. And therefore, he was judging paragraphs and their quality on the basis of a particular model that Alexander Bain had developed. Now, my concern was that he was not really considering the paragraphs in their historical context. That, by that I mean he was, if you like, using a 19th century measuring rod to analyze the quality of work written perhaps in the 15th or 16th century. Now, I'm referring to English, as I mentioned, 15th and 16th century there. But of course, English paragraphing would have been influenced historically by Latin, which in turn had been influenced by Greek. And therefore, I felt it necessary to go right back to the beginning to actually give a wider context for um, an understanding of the paragraph and paragraphing. Also, the, the word paragraph comes from the, the Greek paragraphos, which is um, like our pill crow today. And I thought it was good, therefore, to give a little bit of historical context. Another reason for looking at that history was that the use of historical paragraphing was clearly very multifunctional in its ambit and scope. And that contrasted somewhat, somewhat with Alexander Bain's 19th century view of the paragraph, which seemed to be much more uh, monolithic and, and monofunctional. So the reason for going into history was to try to help the reader appreciate that before Alexander Bain, the paragraph was really quite multifunctional. Paragraph marking had different purposes. And therefore, the effect of Alexander Bain on later generations um, is perhaps a rather large shadow cast upon what was beforehand uh, a much more exciting and vivid and multi-dimensional field of study. That's, that, that just puts me in mind actually now of uh, the effect of the 18th and 19th century on uh, the grammars of English. Um, and I mean, it was only at the end of the 20th century that we finally began to sort of wake up from the sleep of prescriptionism and see that grammar, just as you said of the paragraph, is such a you know versatile, exciting thing. And um, there seems to be a parallel development there in the paragraph as well from, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's an interesting comment. Um, I actually do state in the book that um, Alexander Bain may have been influenced by uh, work that has, was going on in grammar in his own era, and he therefore tried to standardize paragraphs as sentence structure had been standardized over time. And so perhaps there is this useful comparison that we can make of um, an idea of standardization going on. But with that standardization came, as I mentioned before, something of a, of a rather lifeless and dull and um, non-interactional or exciting notion of what paragraphing entailed. And that, that for me is really one of the great benefits of having taken the long historical view as you do, because you see that what the paragraph had been is what the paragraph in a sense always was. And it was only the 
Baneism, if, if we can call it that, or the prescriptionism generally that sort of masked that. And when we, um, if you take the, the research that you cover up from the 1960s and 70s, we start to rediscover things that the paragraph was always doing. Um, I suppose this this leads us right into some of the questions, the basic theoretical questions you get into as as to what the paragraph is. You bring up uh, structural definitions, formal, prosodic, aesthetic even. Um, could you maybe sketch out uh, what the paragraph actually could be understood as? Yes. Yeah, so because this, the subject is such a complicated and complex one, what I do in the first chapter of the book is provide an overview so that the reader, the non-specialist reader, uh, perhaps the university lecturer or, or teacher, can have an idea about um, how we view the paragraph. So what I do at the beginning of the book is look at some different perspectives. So one would be to consider the paragraph primarily in terms of the break. That is, we focus on the indentation rather than the actual block of text. If we focus on that indentation, then how do we consider what's going on there? Do we consider it a, a bit like a big period or a big um, full stop, using the English term? That is, does this um, marker in the text signal a, a similar type of thing that happens when we use a full stop? Is it, for example, separating a, a bigger semantic or grammatical unit than we have with a sentence. Alternatively, again considering the paragraph primarily as the break, we might consider it as one of many types to move the discourse along. For example, we can use a discourse marker to move the writing along. We can use a, a meta-discourse marker and so on. So. Is the paragraph marker like one of these other markers, or or is, is it unique, or is it does it combine with these markers in interesting ways? Another way of looking at the paragraph break would be to consider it to be as a highlighting technique. So just as we start and finish a paragraph, you probably would think that we focus most on the first line and the last line, you'd actually be correct as well. So is it the case that the, we should consider the paragraph break as a kind of highlighting technique, just as we might highlight text with a fluorescent pen when we are reading, does the writer break up the text and break it at points where he or she wants us to focus most? And then of course, we know that one long page of text can be quite overwhelming. And so we know that we sometimes need to break up our text. In that sense, the paragraph break is an aesthetic device, as you mentioned. So these are different ways of focusing on the paragraph in terms of the break. But then we can also consider the paragraph as a unit. And uh, this is where someone like Bain or later in the 1960s Christensen and Becker had their views. So they drew parallels between the sentence and the paragraph. They had a formal view of the paragraph. An alternative way of looking at the unit would be to consider how it maps onto the rhetorical structure of the text. A third way would be to consider how the material within the paragraph is a cohesive unit. 
to be differentiated from the material in the following paragraph, which could be considered another cohesive unit. And so these are a few different perspectives on how we can understand the paragraph. And clearly, if one focuses on the paragraph break, one will see different things to how one focuses on the paragraph unit. That's why I called the, the book Understanding the Paragraph and Paragraphing, because I did not want to focus purely on the paragraph unit, but also the unit as it co-occurs with other units within the whole text. And with all of these different aspects that you've just named, also, you know, sort of proceeding from do we see the break or do we see the unit, uh, what you do then through the second half or slightly above the second half of the book is uh, very enlightening, I find. You look for ways of combining all this to get at a realistic picture of what actually a paragraph is. I'm thinking, for example, this is just one amongst many, in the chapter on the psychological effects of paragraphing, which uh, you've just also referred to when you say, yes, indeed, the, the first and last sentences do have a highlighting type function amongst them. And there you, you bring up the interesting idea that a paragraph is a mediated phenomenon, mediated effect, if you like, on the reader. Um, I wonder if you could tell us uh, something about what you meant with that. Certainly. So the, the paragraph, the break in the paragraph affects us psychologically. And um, there has been considerable amount of research related to pausing. Now, that pausing can be checked through eye movement research. So when someone is reading, they can have um, eye tracking devices attached to their machines. And we can see how people fixate on words or on sentences within paragraphs. One of the interesting things that we can learn from that is that we read differently. And there's some work by uh, a scholar called Hayona, who says that there are probably five different types of readers, which I think is fascinating. But the key focus for my own interest there was to think about how is it that we read as we come across a, a paragraph from the beginning of one to the end and then the beginning of the next. And one influential view of uh, that is um, a, what we call a structure building framework, which is developed by Gernsbacker, who tracks that we perhaps take more time as we build a structure, as we begin to build a new structure. And then as we finish off building a structure, we again take time to close down and then we start again to build a new structure. So the idea that as we're reading, we build structures psychologically, and those structures are, that structural building is facilitated through the paragraph marker. If you like, the paragraph marker tells us to stop building that particular structure, start building a new one. And it may be that a reader struggles to understand because he or she doesn't take the cue from the paragraph break to actually begin to move on to develop a new structure as he or she is reading. So the, the idea of focusing on the psychological effect of the paragraph is that it has, it impacts us in rather interesting ways. And that impact allows us perhaps to recall what we've just uh, read, or it may help us to uh, prepare us for what is to follow. So it's quite a complex uh, field of study, but a very important one because 
the point that I'm trying to make in that paragraph, in that um, chapter, is that um, the paragraph break is unlike other textual phenomena. For example, other textual phenomena, for example, discourse markers or meta discourse markers. These are words, but because the paragraph has this spatial effect on us. Um, it's rather different from these other ways of organizing discourse. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And the psychological effects, uh, as you say, also with these different types of readers, uh, leads you also at one point from the research to, well, at least one branch of the research to conclude that um, clearly things can go wrong if a reader is trying to build up, as you say, some sort of a structure and then gets miscued by a paragraph to start breaking it down and yet the structure actually was meant to continue. So the writer and the reader are working at cross purposes almost in, in that sense. Um, but it's also uh, stated in, in, in another branch of the research that what all this says, for example, with the five types of readers or other such of psychological phenomena is that the writer is at a huge disadvantage to figure out where the paragraphs are best for the reader's sake. Yeah, that's a really good point. And this is a key point, I think, with regards to pedagogy. So today, what we do is we say in teaching, this is the way to paragraph and this is what we should do. Missing from that um, prescriptivism is the actual identity of the reader. Is the reader knowledgeable about the subject? Is the reader a fast reader or a slow reader? Now, According to different paragraphing um, approaches, you would ideally paragraph with your reader in mind. So let me give you an example. If you're going to paragraph perhaps for an uninformed young reader, you may well put a topic sentence at the front so that he or she is guided at the beginning about what is going on in the paragraph. However, if you were actually writing for a very informed, intelligent, well-read person, it may actually be the wrong thing to do to put a topic sentence at the beginning, because that rather obvious statement at the beginning may actually um, demotivate a reader to continue reading. And so one of the fascinating research results is that actually paragraphs that are considered good paragraphs in the teaching profession may actually result in poor retention and poor engagement with the material with a person who has a good background in the subject matter. 
That is, you're not really challenging the reader in the style of your paragraphing to engage with what you're saying. This, of course, means a, a real need to focus on the reader and his or her needs as we write. And this is typically an element of writing instruction that has been neglected or overlooked to date. And that puts me very much in mind of the genre approach to teaching writing, which um, really puts the emphasis right there on the reader or the community of readers to which actually the the writer, him or herself also belongs because essentially the genre approach is writing as a social action. You know, it belongs in our lives just like all the other communal aspects of our lives. And that makes me wonder if... Um, we have these different types of readers, clearly. Um, the research is pointing to the different ways that you know individuals will sort of digest a text. But I wonder what the effect of genre might be on paragraphing, say, for instance, in a scientific research article, where you start to expect certain conventions and you can sort of, is it possible there to level the types of readers, because the the format itself forces a type of reader. Yes, that's, a, that's an excellent point. So often writing instruction in classroom environments is rather readerless in terms of the actual uh, product and who will engage with it. Many writers in classrooms know that the only reader will be the teacher. But as you quite rightly point out, when it comes to writing for purposeful reasons, then we will be thinking of the uh, reader, and the reader will have certain, um, Hoey uses the expression, textual colligation expectations. That means that the reader will be expecting paragraphs to flow in a certain way, will be expecting certain ways of organizing that text. And so for the writer in that environment, the writer needs to be aware of those discourse a specific ways in which we communicate. One of the points that I make at the beginning of the book is that Alexander Bain and his work in particular never really considered the reader and as such made rather prescriptive one-size-fits-all um, comments on what good paragraphing is. Whereas in reality the genre very much determines how we will go about writing. For example, how many sentences we might have, the kind of links between the paragraphs. For example, those will be very different between reading uh, an article in a newspaper and reading a journal article. And so that sensitivity to genre is one of the um, focal points of my research. And I try to say that we need to understand genres better so that we can therefore make comments about the paragraph which are more intelligent, specific, and real to actual readers of real genres and writers engaged with those genres. Which puts me in mind again of the topic sentence as, as you were going, uh, as you were saying earlier about uh, having a young reader who's uneducated or an expert reader who's educated. You 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 make. Um, crystal clear the point that, and I love the way you, you formulate this, the, the structural, that structural clarity is really something that is positive, neutral, or even negative in effect. Um, something that, you know, sort of cohesion, for example, which was taken as the norm for the paragraph, 
can't necessarily be you know generalized across all type text types, all paragraphs, even within one text, and so on. Um, or quite plainly, the topic sentence, as you, as you go into another branch of the research, the topic sentence seems to be something that's quite good for um, a discipline outsider, but really not so helpful to the expert on the, su- on the subject matter. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. I think as um, teachers, we're, we drill our uh, students on the idea of topic sentences, but actually when you read and when students read, they will often find that um, a, a good paragraph, if you like, a, a paragraph written by a, um, a published author in their discipline-specific fields, maybe doesn't begin with a paragraph with a, a topic sentence. It may be that there's a topic sentence which which is what someone's called a major topic sentence, and it controls perhaps two or three paragraphs rather than just one. It may be that the topic sentence comes perhaps in the second sentence of a paragraph, if there is one at all. And one of the things that we obsess about, particularly in marking schemes, is this need for a topic sentence. However, the idea that we might drop the need for a topic sentence because we want to draw the reader in, we don't want to be too predictable, that's never really considered to be, at least from the teaching materials that I've read and engaged with, that's never really proposed as a way of um, proceeding. What I've done in a recent piece of research after writing the book is to actually analyze some student essays. These were essays written and published in American university magazines on various issues, and I analyzed them for Uh, criteria such as the inclusion or exclusion of a topic sentence and there is surprising variety there. It's not the case that things are as predictable as we might assume and I think part of the reason why we wish to move away from an overly prescriptive form is that it's uh, rather boring to engage with and I actually make that point at the beginning of the book that some critics of prescriptivist approaches to paragraphing I've noticed that even from the teacher's perspective, it's not always that satisfying to actually receive a piece of writing which ticks all the boxes and yet somehow seems a bit uncreative or or uninteresting or unengaging. And so the focus on some of the format issues, the structure of the paragraph, I think have been largely counterproductive to student creativity, interest, reader engagement and genre sensitivity. All those things you just mentioned there uh, make me think of the, well, at least one of the more recent divides and approaches to uh, teaching writing, the the process model, or as we're speaking of now, the genre model of writing. And I wonder if you might, uh, the writing process is something that you also spend um, an entire chapter on. I, I wonder if you might say something to which of these approaches perhaps are maybe even generally more useful to writers at the academic level, people also perhaps even entering already graduate work or hoping to publish, and also specifically with respect to the paragraph, how is it that the process or genre model could perhaps um, help a writer more or less? Okay, so when it comes to um, paragraphs within the writing process, historically, there was a view that we would plan ahead of time and we would perhaps plan in subject matter 
or even more specifically we would plan ahead in time in terms of the paragraph and it does seem that some writers actually went about writing in such a way um, someone called Wendell in the late 19th century believed that we should plan in paragraphs however on the other side we had someone um, called Rogers who wrote in the 1960s who actually said that he basically decided on the paragraphing of his text at the very end of the writing process. If we look at most writers today I think particularly because we have keyboards and computer screens in front of us we um, cut up our writing a lot and we we don't approach things either from a pre-paragraph focus or a post-paragraph focus but we seem to do lots of things at, um, all at once. There is of course a problem with that because writing has been described as one of the most complex things that we ever do and so if we don't have some kind of criteria to help guide us about what to focus on at what point of the process of writing, it can make the task rather overwhelming for us. So I've pointed to some research which suggests that um, thinking about the paragraphing towards the end of the writing process, having the reader primarily in mind rather than actually the writer trying to engage with the material and um, put it down in a way which is coherent and makes sense, may actually help. So putting a bit more of a focus on the paragraph and your paragraphing at the end of writing, particularly with the reader in mind, may actually be a way to help learner writers develop the skill of paragraphing, if you like, to put it towards the end of their checklist of things, just to check before they press that submit button or before they hand in that piece of work. Well, that sounds wonderful to, to me because I have to admit, um, and, and you, you make some great points about um, the variables affecting the paragraphing process. And, and the one that really stuck out for me was whether or not you're using a pen or a keyboard. And I'm going to um, divulge secrets here about my own writing process. It always begins with a pen and paper, and it begins pointedly with no paragraphs. They are very much, um, as, as you've just described, something that happens later when the text is being typed up or even after a first typing through. Uh, you talk about the other variables, though, that are uh, key in the way that a paragraph or the paragraphing process, better said, um, goes about the individual writer, him or herself, um, the text type that we're dealing with, language proficiency is another one of the uh, issues that's uh, brought up, which I find uh, quite interesting. And then lastly, what I've just mentioned, whether or not you're dealing with pen, keyboard, electronic or non-electronic. Yes, that's right. And so we need to remember those variables as, um, as we consider um, giving instruction on, on paragraphing. Um, so for example, with regards to uh, the individual, you know, how familiar is that individual with that type of uh, writing? If the writer is not that uh, familiar with that particular text type, for example, a descriptive essay or so on, then the whole issue about paragraphing is very different to a writer who is familiar with that genre and has written um, paragraphs and texts beforehand. When we think about um, text type and proficiency, 
we also think about the the kind of time that people spend on different elements of their writing. For example, I might not spend much time thinking about my grammatical accuracy, whereas perhaps some writers do. Now, that in turn will have a knock-on effect on the focus that I have on paragraphing compared to another writer. And of course, our backgrounds also impact upon us. Uh, is it the case, for example, that you've been taught uh, in your school or university environment about what you should have in a paragraph? Has that had a profound impact on your approach to the structure and organization? Have you been directed as to how exactly to go about the steps of writing? And if you have, again, is that impacting you? And compared to another person who has a different background, perhaps more of a laissez-faire attitude rather than a prescriptive approach in their educational background, that will also impact where my focus is at different times and adds to the complexity of actually giving uh, one-for-all instruction as a teacher in front of 20 students, you're looking at 20 students with different backgrounds, uh, different emphases in their writing, uh, different attention, concentration, different um, focus on the writer, sorry, the reader, or whether the writer is him or herself focusing more on him or herself as uh, they write. So it's very complex, and I that's what I'm trying to draw out in these um, chapters that the, the level of complexity of what's going on um, is often way beyond our rather simplistic notions. Probably is the same for uh, the sentence as well, <laughs> um, that there's far more going on than our simplistic notions, which, you know, this is correct and this is incorrect. Um, I find myself when I'm teaching writing often saying, well, this works, this doesn't work, this works better, this doesn't work as good as that, and so on. I, I mean, it all turns out to be relative. Much of what you're saying, though, about, let's say, one type of paragraph in in a specific genre, written for an expert reader, puts me in mind of um, a stylist, uh, Verlin Klinkenborg, who's written from the sentence perspective. He says it's all the sentence. And I wonder, um, clearly, he, <laughs> and one thing that he does is he generally almost makes a paragraph out of every sentence, or maybe two sentences together, which which is rather radical move. But mm. his, his, his main message is, is that we've got to get ourselves and our readers from one sentence to the next. And this would seem to also stand, hold true for your suggestion that we can push paragraphing off to a bit later. Um, we need first off to be sure of the thought and where we're taking the reader. And then we can add on, or not even add on, that's, that's, not, that's not the best way of putting it, but then we can layer paragraphs through that. Yeah, it, the idea of cohesion between sentences is obviously something that we focus a lot on in uh, writing instruction. But what about the cohesion between paragraphs? So someone called Rachel Giora, uh, she in her research noted that actually we often finish a paragraph by looking forward to the next paragraph. And so there'll be some kind of a lexical link, perhaps, or a grammatical link between the last sentence of one paragraph and the first sentence of the next. So 
making the sentence everything, well, we also have to think about how um, we're going to link the sentences, whether within a paragraph or between paragraphs. And one of the things that I focus on in the book is that those patterns of cohesiveness are actually different. By that I mean the kind of links that we would allow between sentences within the same paragraph may be quite different between the paragraph between the sentences and their cohesive links between two different paragraphs. One obvious example of that would be something like pronominal anaphora. So where we use, for example, the word he at the beginning of a paragraph would perhaps be a little bit odd. We might think that we might need to use the full um, noun in that position because we perhaps are a little uncomfortable with starting a new paragraph with that particular cohesive device. Although the subject is obviously more complicated than I've just hinted at, but the idea that some kind of links are or are not so acceptable uh, between sentences in paragraphs is something that I try to draw out in the book and consider what that might mean for us. Yeah, that provides uh, that whole paragraph, um, that whole chapter. I keep saying paragraph. <laughs> I wonder mm -hmm. why. <laughs> that that whole chapter it provides wonderful evidence for um, there being a structural reality to the paragraph, and it's really our job as educators or writers um, to make sense of it and make it work in our particular texts. And 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 that is something that you also offer at the end of the book: um, a descriptivist pedagogy. Of paragraphing, as you call it, some of which we've covered in some um, detail already. Genre sensitivity, for example. There's other points in there that are also very, very interesting, and I can see how they would um, be useful for uh, novice writers. So, it being perhaps a cognitive aid to the writer is one point that you make, or the, as you call it, supra paragraph textual units in text, so how paragraphs work amongst themselves. Um, mm -hmm. All of these or any others that you uh, find interesting would be um, interesting to hear you comment on. Okay, um, yes, well at the end of the book, after having gone through all the history, the previous educational treatment, and then looking at various discourse treatments, whether that be in corpus linguistics or psychology research, and so on. At the end of the book, I provide three paragraphs of the, sorry, three definitions of the paragraph. One is a, a textual definition, one is a reader definition, and one is a writer definition. So I say that it's perhaps best for us to think about paragraphs from these three distinct positions rather than trying to define the paragraph uh, rather simply, because if we do, we're going to be missing out on one of the three elements that I just mentioned. Also in the last paragraph, what I try to do is provide a what I call a descriptivist pedagogy of paragraphing. So instead of thinking about approaching the paragraph from uh, tight prescriptivist perspectives, namely this is what you should do, this is what you should do, this is what you should do, I uh, think about a, a different way of thinking about the paragraph in the classroom. So I have seven points um, which I explain in, in some detail, and I use a little analogy to think about those seven points. So I compare the text with a ball, and I compare the panels of the ball with the paragraphs of the text. Um, I'm not going to go the full detail of all of those points, but what I, what I do is I think about the, uh, the actual text from 
different perspectives. For example, the genre will influence uh, one's approach to a particular text. The genre will have an impact on what we consider to be normative and normal. In addition, we need to remember that paragraphing is not just for the reader. The paragraphing process actually helps the writer to think about the thoughts that need to be communicated. I then think about the kind of variation that we might have in a text. I might write a text with five paragraphs or four paragraphs. Of course, I would make some adjustments within the text um, to facilitate those two different models. And yet, I do have that kind of variation, which is legitimate. And I need to think about how I'm going to utilize that variation. Of course, for some genres, there may not be such um, options, not be so many options or varieties for me. But in others, I have that uh, scope. Then I talk about how the panels on the ball might be related to each other in some way, rather like a, perhaps a volleyball it has these three strips which look quite similar next to each other. Similarly, we need to think about how paragraphs might be similar to each other, whether that be in lexis, whether that be in structure, whether that be in length, and not to just focus on one paragraph and make the paragraph the, the focus of our writing. I then think about how those panels on the ball might be related to um, panels which are not directly next to the, uh, the panels on the ball and think about how they relate to the rhetorical structure of the text and how they may or may not map onto the deeper structure of the text. Finally, coming to um, the last couple of points, I think about the links between texts that I mentioned before. We often think about links between sentences, but perhaps not enough about the links between sentences within as we move from one paragraph to the next. So I talk about different types of linking that we might have between paragraphs. And then my final point is that rather than making the text the focus, sorry, the paragraph the focus, we need to focus more on the actual whole text and what the paragraph is contributing to that text. One of the problems if we f focus just on the paragraph is we, do, we, we lose that co-textual uh, identity of the paragraph. We need to think about the text as a whole and how one paragraph is relating to another as it builds up a picture which is being communicated to the reader. So yes, I provide this little model at the end as a, an alternative to um, more prescriptivist approaches. And I'm looking forward to learning how teachers might be able to employ this kind of model and hopefully get more interest in paragraphing from their students um, and also how they themselves might be stimulated to think about paragraphing in a more interesting and uh, stimulating way. Well, I can wholeheartedly support the idea that teachers here are going to find uh, one gem after another in the last chapter with the descriptiveness uh, pedagogy, which, which you've just run us through, um, is it's really versatile. It's, 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 it's a way of thinking about paragraphs so that 
you're not just putting red marks next to them and <laughs> offering no real fruitful feedback uh, to students. I, I really like the last point you make there about the co-text and the purpose of the paragraph when, within a text because that really is a great point to end on because you then make it clear that as, as with everything in writing, and it's probably one of those things that makes writing so difficult, as, as, as you state in the book and, and have told us again now, um, that you've got to just think about it. You've got to figure out what is going to work at that point. If I get a student who says to me, you know, is this a good paragraph? Uh, the best answer is essentially for what? Yeah. <laughs> and the same thing. And the same thing is true of a sentence, right? Is, is this a good sentence? I, I need to know the co-text. Yes, and that's that's one of the big um, historical failings in paragraph, paragraphing pedagogy and research is that we have focused on this unit within the wider text and given it a kind of a status which it should never have had by divorcing the uh, paragraph from its cotextual environment we focused on something which isn't actual, actually in reality a complete entity and yet our teaching has often made it such. So yes, that is a, a major focus. If you like at the end of the book on understanding the paragraph and paragraphing, I'm actually saying the most important thing is to understand the text and what the paragraph is doing in it rather than obsessing about a particular criteria which should or shouldn't be there for the particular paragraph. Well, Ian, you've uh, been very generous with your time. I thank you. Um, I do have one last question, though. Um, again, a, a bit of a divulging, I guess, here. When my wife saw on my uh, desk a book about paragraphing, she sort of, sort of shook her head thinking, Good God, <laughs> how, can, how can there be a book about the paragraph? I wonder what, after all this research, this in-depth look into this aspect of text has had for an effect on your own writing. Uh, that's that's an interesting um, uh, question. Um, yes, I'm I'm currently a, a researcher. I'm I'm writing papers. Um, and what about my paragraphs? Well, interestingly, one of my supervisors pulled me up on uh, on my paragraphing recently, and so I had a bit of a joke with him about this. That uh, well, I've I've taught people what they need to know, but it doesn't mean that necessarily I follow my own instruction. <laughs> so. Uh, so, yes, it has had an impact, though, in the sense of making me think much more, I think, about the reader. I think that's the big thing that I would say, is that who do I expect the reader to be in terms of background? There are many things that I cannot know about the reader, his or her um, reading style, for example. But just to think about, am I helping the reader in how I paragraph? It might not necessarily be the case that the writer is really helped by making things so clear and in a sense so redundant in the text it may be that a little bit of ambiguity or perhaps leaving um, some detail some key detail to a little bit later on in the paragraph may actually be the way to engage the reader rather than making things perhaps quite so predictable as we might consider so i think that in that way um, i've become more sensitive uh, to the reader. I also like teaching paragraphs and and try to gently uh, reteach perhaps that some of our pedagogy is not really 
um, as helpful as it might be. Unfortunately, because we have marking criteria, which often focuses on some of the more predictable types of criteria about what should be present in a paragraph, we, we teach it and students begin to really believe that it's true. But what I would like to think I do with my own students now is to challenge them to think a little bit beyond um, those basic uh, criteria that they've been brought up with and to think about expanding their idea about what paragraphing really means. I have to follow up the last question because you, you've just got me thinking that when you're teaching writing, I've 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 taught language, I've taught English literature, and I've taught writing. And when I and, and nowhere else have I met as much the sort of statement along the lines of, "But I was told you can't." <laughs> in other words, it seems that people find a level of security in 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 their writing practice by keeping a set of rules in mind. Yeah. So I was told you can't uh, begin a sentence uh, with but. I was told you are supposed to use the passive when you're writing in scientific literature. I was told you have to have a paragraph that looks of this sort or that sort. There must be a topic sentence at the top. Um, I wonder, pedagogically, how would you perhaps go about handling this? Because you're in the process, when you think about the paragraph, of helping people also unlearn things, aren't you? Yes, and, and that's one of the, the real challenges, isn't it? I remember speaking at, uh, on a related theme at a conference, and someone coming up to me afterwards and saying, well, to be honest with you, I'd be quite happy if students just did what I told them to and used topic sentences, supporting sentences, and a concluding sentence. And if you like, it was a a little bit of a perhaps cynical response to the type of um, emphasis that I was giving in my paper, where I was suggesting that those things are not enough. Perhaps it is the case that we need to know some basic points before we can then intelligently depart from them. So perhaps what we can do, rather than asking students to unlearn, as you just mentioned, it would be more to Okay, so those were some basic pointers, but now let's think about how we can move forward from that. How can we develop and expand rather than think that we've learned everything and we're, we can do what we can do. Why not think about broadening our horizons and now exploring some of the more interesting things? One of the points I make in the book is that unless we give students the tools which they need to be able to engage in really um, uh, cutting edge or um, incisive, careful argumentation. If they don't have those tools, then they won't be able to do that. So I think expanding students' horizons to give them some of these tools is a, a one way in which we can not perhaps ask them to unlearn, but rather simply develop. Great answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, that is Ian uh, McGee and his book, Understanding the Paragraph and Paragraphic was out with Equinox in 2018. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Ian. Goodbye. Thank you, Daniel. Goodbye. Thank you for having me with you on your program today. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.